The interviews and discussions on this podcast are opinions only and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. Hello, I'm your host, Peter Strachan. Stockheads Rockyarn is delighted to be back in conversation with the Chief Executive Officer at Combined Rare Earth and Phosphate Project Developer, RareX Limited, James Durrant. James, I get the impression that RareX has been extremely busy on a number of fronts, including ongoing metallurgical test work on both the phosphate and rare earth sides of the Cummins Range project. You've signed offtake agreements for projects agricultural phosphate product, established port access and facilities at Wyndham, and importantly, I think, outlining three additional carbonatite exploration targets within easy access to your existing rare earth and phosphate resource at Cummins Range. While the price of the project's co-product phosphate keeps moving higher, James, where would you like to start and what do you think has been the most significant progress since we last spoke in July? Thank you, Peter. And uh, it is nice to be talking with you again. Um, we have been rather busy. Um, since we put out the uh, the scoping study and which really set the direction of this project, uh, that direction being, you know, what is the sort of lowest risk, lowest cost way we can bring about a critical minerals project up in the Kimberley. Um, we've been going through um, the supply chain, uh, which I think is one of the most key aspects of this project in order to get it going the quickest. Um, as you rightly pointed out, you know, we've got uh, this, um, we've got rare earths and we've got phosphates, and we know that they can go into the lithium ion battery, um, uh, lithium ion phosphate battery space uh, with the phosphate, they can go into the magnet motors uh, with the rare earths. Uh, and we're able to move that pre-strip material uh, into the agricultural sector as a, as, a, as a starting point. And all of that requires a good, solid supply chain to get us uh, to get our material onto a boat. And so once we realized that, you know, the, the, the direction of the project um, was as it was laid out in the scoping study, that's been the key focus is how do you de-risk that supply chain? Because it's all very well designing projects in uh, in Australia, in, in remote Australia, semi-remote, I suppose, is what we would call ourselves. But if you can't get that product out, then you've got no hope of really monetizing the asset. And so um, whilst all the technical work was going on, um, which I can talk to um, a little later, we were really focused on how do you stitch that supply chain together using as much existing infrastructure as possible, using as many um, local companies that are familiar with operating in that region as possible so that you can de-risk the supply chain and show that you have a pathway to move up to 500 or 600,000 tons worth of product onto a vessel at, um, at Wyndham Port. And so we realized that the bottleneck of all that was getting it onto a boat. You know, there's already a port there, um, but it only has one mineral loading facility and it's owned by Kimberley Metals Group. They operate an iron ore project or have historically operated an iron ore project and they're about to do so as well next year, um, not too far from the Argyle Diamond Mine site. That was our key. Um, we built a, built a relationship um, with that company. Um, we shared some technical data. We realized that um, that facility has a capacity of approximately 3 million tons um, 
of uh, bulk loading capability. Um, they had just done the work to make sure that they can bring a supermax vessel underneath that uh, that loading facility. So transshipment doesn't have to be done. And that's always a, an annoying inefficiency in the supply chain. Um, and they were only going to use about 1 million tons of that capacity. So there's 2 million tons in reserve. And um, we worked with our lawyers that are based in uh, in Brisbane and do all the infrastructure sharing for the port over there uh, to come up with the term sheet of, of sharing that facility. So that was a really great um, piece of the puzzle. That was our bottleneck. And we're very, very grateful for Kimberley Metals Group to come to the party. We've also got first rights over any spare capacity on that. And we've got uh, first rights to buy the assets should they sell. Yeah, sure. So we, the product you're making is more of an industrial commodity. It's not like a, you know a bar of gold bullion where you could go out onto St George's Terrace and sell it. You've got to actually find a buyer who's willing to take the product that you're going to make. Absolutely, uh, offtake is absolutely critical for this. Um, it is the main uh, it's the main focus of the business now. Um, you would have seen good progress, uh, and you'll continue to see good progress on offtake. There are two products that we're essentially selling. We've got the pre-strip overburden material um, that is a direct application rock phosphate. It's probably comparable to Egyptian rock phosphate. Um, It is a uh, simple uh, dig and ship commodity. The uh, MOU that we uh, we signed with Nitron, uh, Nitron are are the second largest fertilizer trading company in the world. They're based out of the US. Um, they've got a local division called Monco, um, and they are really looking to um, disrupt the local markets, uh, the sort of Australasian markets uh, for direct application fertilizer. And um, they're uh, happy to progress um, with an offtake of around 250,000 tonnes, which is, let's say, approximately 70 to 80 percent of what we intend to produce. And that gives us um, sufficient space within the offtake for price discovery, which is a key part of the offtake strategy. Um, so they signed up and we're moving to long form with that. So James, what has the price of rock phosphate done since you did the, the preliminary feasibility work? How, how has that moved? Until, uh, until very recently, it was on a very continuous uh, ride, stronger and stronger. Um, a lot of, um, a lot of the, uh, the, the, the situations in um, Eastern Europe and now in the Middle East have contributed towards that. Uh, I'd say it's now plateaued, but it is a very strong phosphate price. I mean, um, your your benchmark, your your um, your, your Moroccan um, OCP product, which is uh, which is the the general benchmark, is sitting comfortably around the three hundred US dollars per ton FOB. Um, we would probably compare ourselves from a quality perspective to the Egyptians uh, material that's running at over a hundred US dollars a ton FOB. Uh, the local markets which we're targeting, uh, which would be um, would be displacing that Egyptian stuff, is a lot closer to us, uh, and we can move bigger ships there, so we get a, a good fr- freight net back as well. So very attractive, indeed. Yeah. So yeah, it probably costs sixty dollars a ton to move it from Morocco or Egypt. And would you be able to truck some of that product to the, you know, the wheat belt and other horticultural users in Western Australia or Australia generally? It is absolutely our intention to move product into the local um, the local agricultural space. I think that's not only um, it's the right thing to do, it's good economically because the supply chain is a lot shorter. Um, certainly in the north, um, we really want to help uh, the, the area, uh, the Kimberley, uh, the East Kimberley where we're operating. We want to help them as best we can. Um, we think we've got a product that will work and they think we've got a product that will work um, to display some of their 
um, fertilizer use and some of their soil conditioning applications um, with our with our pre-strip material. We're currently testing um, that material um, in a soil laboratory at the moment uh, using soils from the regions that you talked about, the, the wheat belt regions, the southwest fruit growing regions, the um, the uh, uh, Ord River uh, district and the surrounding plains. So we'll get a really good handle for how and where we place that product um, into the local market. So the product just really has to be crushed and sized, does it? Do you just screen it or what? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It needs to be sized um, to to uh, to a sort of two to five millimeter particle that can then be used with the agricultural equipment, and and that is it. It's highly bioavailable. Um, the, the the phosphate liberates very easily from that, um, and it's uh, and it'll be organic and uh, and it'll be made in the Kimberley supporting regional growth. So it's a really nice product, and it's got a lot of intangible value in use as well as tangible value in use. So can we can we move to the metallurgy? Because I noticed you've done more work on the sort of second phase when you'll be producing a concentrate of, uh, of phosphate because you'll be mining lower grade material and, and you're able to upgrade it quite simply. And you'll also then be producing a, a rare earth oxide concentrate. Yes, absolutely. The, the fertiliser side is just, uh, it's just the pre-strip. It's just to get the mine going, to get the supply chain going. The, the main game is the mineral concentrate, as you say. The mineral concentrate is the main game from an offtake perspective, and it's the main game from a um, from a cash flow perspective for the business and, and our economic models. Um, what we are um, going to be selling um, and, and producing at the mine gate is a dual mineral mineral concentrate of um, rare earth bearing monazite and phosphate bearing apatite. Like they're very, they behave very similarly as as uh, minerals, and so we're going to float them together rather than. Um, rather than the challenging task of trying to separate them in the flotation circuits. So then you have to find a, a customer who'll who'll buy that and and leach out the phosphate and then take the um, the remaining monazite with the rare earths in it and then process that separately. But how much of the upside will you be able to capture on that? Yeah, look, exactly. So um, we'll be placing it into the phosphoric acid business, particularly the ones that uh, supply the lithium-ion phosphate battery precursor acids, um, because the appetite that can be leached out um, in that leaching step is incredibly clean. Uh, It doesn't have rare earths in it. It doesn't have um, heavy metals in it. It doesn't have any uranium or thorium in it. It doesn't have any cadmium in it. It has very low fluorine. So it's very, very good to go into the LFP battery space. Um, that leaves the rare earth behind, um, and that moves off into a, into a traditional monazite refinery. Um, because of the value and use of the uh, the appetite being incredibly clean, we expect to get a very good um, very good value uh, return from that. Uh, and the monazite is reasonably well placed um, from a um, reasonably well placed to go into a in, into a into a typical refinery. Now, rare earth prices have been reasonably suppressed of late, and the the feedback from the industry is that they are below, they've they've plateaued at the bottom below the Goldilocks price, which is basically they are they are now being traded for um, a lower price than the cost of production of the lowest cost producer, and so it's now only upside um, that we've got ahead. Yeah, they've actually been rising in the last couple of quarters. I've noticed, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some funny business going on in our northern neighbor there who controls 80 percent of the market uh, there there absolutely there absolutely is um, our, our governments were advising the industry of it um, uh, about a year ago that it was going to occur around about this time um, it's it's an attempt to try and um, 
prevent um, the technology of downstream processing being developed outside of China because they clearly dominate that sector very, very strongly. Um, but now, as you say, we're just starting to see the end of that plateau. We're starting to see the, the uptick of, um, of the rare earth prices again. And I, I think from a, a pure demand um, supply perspective, um, we're going to see good price recovery um, over the near term. So, James, the, the initial buyer of your concentrate will be a phosphoric acid producer. Will you be selling the concentrate to two end users or will the phosphoric acid uh, producer take the phosphate out and then on sell the monazite to a rare earth uh, refinery? Or will you have control through that process once it leaves the, uh, the port at Wyndham? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, and, and it is being worked through as we speak. Ideally, um, we want the, simplistic, uh, the simplest way of doing it. Um, we want to be able to sell the concentrate on a boat uh, at Wyndham, and essentially that's the end of our responsibility. Um, but we recognize that because of it is an atypical product, it is a speciality product, we might have to support the onward sale, sell of the, the monazite. But I mean, you've, you've clearly got your head wrapped around this and it is, it is a more complicated product um, uh, uh, proposition than is typically the case. But that, uh, that is because we've managed to simplify the rest of the project. Now it really is about... Yeah, and the metallurgy works so well you can demonstrate that you don't want to leave eighty percent of the value, you know, in the you know on the ship. See you later, you know. Absolutely, yeah, no, a hundred percent. So we'll be we'll be making sure that we we know um, where that product leapfrogs to from the phosphoric acid uh, facility to the monazite facility. We're looking at it from a couple of directions. One one being the um, OEM perspective, the original equipment manufacturers, the electric vehicle producers, and their primary suppliers. And we're looking at it from a geographic perspective. Where are the where are the monazite facilities co-located with phosphoric acid facilities? That's providing us with the right kind of focus for this product and where we're going to place. Yeah, well, you want to be talking talking to Uncle Joe and his IRA to uh, to see if they've got any interest. Um, James, um, the expiration targets, which look absolutely. You know, you wouldn't die in a ditch without putting a hole in some of those. What's the plan there over the next six months? Yeah, they're very interesting. The the, the geophysics was done. We suspected there was some near term uh, nearby targets. The geophysics was done. It really helped define those. Um, there's some areas that look incredibly similar to to the areas that we've seen the enrichment at Cummins Range. Um, and typically with these carbonatites, uh, you do end up with a swarm of them. Um, the geology, geology team, um, they've now moved off Cummins range uh, from the primary deposit. That's sufficiently well-defined. and It's being worked through all of our mining schedules and all the engineering works. Their focus now is um, planning uh, what we do in the next few months to really generate targets of the near mine type um, uh, anomalies and to get boots on the ground again as soon as, um, as, as, soon as possible next year so that we can start turning those targets into... Uh, something more material. And we think that anything that we find in that area that's nearby has the ability to either elongate the mine life substantially. We've already got 18 years, moving 500 plus thousand tons of material, but lengthen the mine life or indeed um, add to the, the scale of it or the product suite that we can offer. So it's very, very interesting for us. But it's not the only exploration upside we have. We've got quite a lot. Yeah. And you've got the wet season closing in on you there at the moment, so it's going to be difficult to get a drill rig up there before that happens. It is. We, we, we plan ourselves very carefully around the seasons. Um, 
now that the uh, now that the, the the wet season's upon us, it's all the desktop work, and there's uh, there's a certain amount of that, uh, quite a lot of that, where the mine geos and the and the exploration geos get into it, really understand where we're going to be targeting our work next year, um, both at the near mine stuff, but also more broadly across our tenements uh, in the Kimberley at Mounts Manbridge at Maud Creek, and even in the East Yilgarn, uh, where we've got um, Red Dragon and uh, World North. Yeah. So look, before we uh, wrap up, can you just remind the listener of the key deliverables from RareX's feasibility work, as well as the scope and size of the resource that's been outlined so far? Look, I mean, it is technically um, Australia's largest undeveloped rare earth project. And uh, and if you have a look at our um, peer comparisons that we've presented in our presentation material, we're, we're very large, even when you when adjust the grade to normalise ourselves against the peer group. Um, we've probably got the, uh, the third largest, if not um, the second largest reserves pending. Um, we are a very efficient uh, potential producer uh, by way of capital deployment for uh, kilotons of rare earth, uh, rare earth produced every year. And of course, we've got the phosphate on top of all of that, the, uh, the, the LFP phosphate um, and also the pre-strip material that goes into the ag sector. So it's a very sizable project. Um, we, we, we want to get this thing into operation. Um, we think we can do it in 2025. Um, so a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the milestones are going to be about focusing on getting the overburden material licensed so we can start mining and start moving material along the supply chain in 2025. So that means all of the preconditions for environmental approvals get sorted out um, and closed off early next year. Um, we're continuing to work on the beneficiation plant um, so we'll be continuously producing metallurgical samples, product samples, product derivative samples. That all supports the offtake and it supports the process design of that facility. And of course, while all those project related milestones are coming through, which we're obviously, as you would have seen, very keen to disclose and continue to disclose our progress, the exploration team um, are focused on generating targets on our rather exciting um, portfolio of exploration tenements. And so we'll get quite a lot of miles, quite a lot of um, uh, deliverables out of that, which we'll be publicising uh, to our to our shareholders. Yeah. So the the first phase, the the rock phosphate agricultural product, is a two year, maybe two and a half year phase, and then you move into needing a concentrator for the uh, rare earth phosphate product. Quite right. Yes. Um, we. We see the overburden material and the, the monetization of that agricultural overburden material as a very key de-risking step uh, for the project, which is already already a very low-risk rare earth project. I mean, you don't have to go far in peer comparisons to see the cost and risk that others are going to be taking on. Um, but you're right. It, we want to run it for about two to three years before building the beneficiation plant. Uh, that gives us a very nice runway. Um, but it is incumbent upon us to work out how we de-risk the project and bring that beneficiation plant forwards, because that is making the product that really drives the value in this project. Um, the sooner we can um, mine the dual mineral concentrate, the higher the cash flows, the earlier cash flows, the better the economics. Um, but we have to do it with risk in mind. It's very important being a critical minerals project, a rare earth project, uh, to make sure that we manage risk. Yeah, well, we've seen other projects, you know, struggling. Even it took Linus about five or six years before they ironed out all the wrinkles. And I think your approach is a much simpler approach. You're not trying to, you know, be 
reinvent the wheel and and do it, be everything to everyone. You're just making a concentrate and selling it. So shouldn't be as high risk from that point of view. It gives you plenty of run room later to add value down the track. That that's that's exactly right. And we get going as simple as possible. We get the offtake as simple as possible to overseas um, value chain um, operators, but we don't stop at that. We then look to how do we bring that value chain back into Australia in the first step, and then how do we bring that value chain into the business? And those are net, those are steps that we can go through. We'll have time to evaluate them properly, make sure we're doing it exactly right, make sure it's the most value-creative approach. Um, and I think it means that we're set up for a, a very successful business in the future. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time. James, what was the final um, net present value of the feasibility work you did earlier on in the year? Yeah, look, all these numbers are post-tax. And so, you know, always be careful when comparing with others. There's a lot of pre-tax numbers out there. They're post-tax. They're inclusive of a lot of contingency, a lot of sustaining capital, um, native title contributions, tax royalties, et cetera. Um, it's just under $350 million, um, Australian dollars net present value. Uh, post-tax and about 27% IRR. Uh, that's an that's an NPV8 value. So it is robust. And we've uh, compared our um, our input prices. It's a very easy thing to manipulate a product project's value by, um, by changing and adjusting the product price. You'll see that that's heavily discounted product prices, certainly relative to our peers. They're in the, uh, towards the bottom of what we're expecting to get. Um, they're discounted for market incentivization. They're discounted for value chain position. Um, and we've measured them in our um, scoping study against uh, different price um, outcomes in the future. If rare earths don't recover, if phosphates fall off, we've got that comparison. So we know that we, we're a robust project. It's very nice to have two uh, sort of commodity sectors that we play in and one can hedge against the other in many ways. It is, so co-products in a way. So that gives you a leg up. So, and James, market cap at the moment is just just under 20 million. So there's plenty to play for, for um for the next couple of years. So thanks for coming into uh, Stockhead today and giving us a rundown on what's been a pretty busy five months since we last spoke. And uh, I will catch up with you in when the dry season arrives early next year and uh, all of your uh, rock kickers are, uh, by then they'll be so excited to get back up there and do some drilling. Absolutely, you know, they, they will. And thank you very much, Peter. I look forward to that discussion. I think we will have made ever more material movements towards a, a, a real operating uh, project. Brilliant. Thanks for coming.